Uh, I've been here in England, uh, and one of them I've just learned today, and uh, it was a surprise that I had to come so far to learn it, and that is that there's civilization in Australia outside of Sydney. But <laughs> I went there once, but well, that's another story. I wonder whether you've uh, ever played the dictionary game. And we've had hands up. Could you put your hands up if you've ever played the dictionary game? Oh, well, let me, let me enlighten you. Thank you, those of you who haven't played it. On holidays earlier this year, uh, I was reintrodu reintroduced to this uh, simple, amusing, brain-stretching pastime. All you need is a good number of participants, some paper and pens, and, of course, a dictionary. One player looks through the dictionary to find a word that's unknown to all the others. Then each player takes it in turns to invent a dictionary-type definition for the word. The definitions are collected, the dictionary's answer is added to the pile, and each of them is read out. And then all the players have to try and work out which one is the dictionary's definition. It's not a game I suspect would be very popular if you're a postmodernist or a deconstructionist. But when we played the game earlier this year, there were moments of near hysterical laughter. Some of the definitions were bizarre, some of them absolutely outrageous. And it was all good fun. Of course, it was much more fun when one or two of us gave up trying to write sensible definitions and just went for the laughs. But it was a great time. However, sometimes in real life, I get the feeling people are still playing the dictionary game. Some very important words are being stretched beyond the bounds of all credibility. You've recognised the same thing, no doubt. Sometimes, of course, it doesn't matter that a word is being redefined. After all, ours is a living, developing language. None of us really wants to go back to Elizabethan English. But at other times, much more is involved and the redefinition matters. If I'm not mistaken, there is a concerted attempt being made at present to redefine what it means to be an evangelical Christian. A number of prominent people around the world are trying to broaden the term, to encompass a variety of perspectives which once were quite alien to evangelical thought and practice. 20 years ago, John Stott was able to define evangelicalism as authentic biblical Christianity, where thought and practice are shaped by God's revelation of himself in a verbally inspired, infallible scripture. Today, a number of leading evangelical thinkers consider such a definition to be too narrow, too divisive, too doctrinaire. We are repeatedly warned of the danger of division and disintegration and the need to be more inclusive in our ideas or our attitudes and our practice. Old-fashioned liberal evangelicalism is trying to hijack the middle ground and sadly the attempt is succeeding in many quarters. One of the fascinating experiences of my time in England has been to hear my friends those whom I've always known simply as evangelicals, described first as conservative evangelicals and most recently as the highly conservative. Now, you shouldn't be surprised. The only way liberal evangelicalism can capture the middle ground 
is to push us out to the periphery and make us sound extreme. I recently heard one leading English theologian describe those who would define evangelicalism in terms of its theology as fascists. Well, my analysis of the current situation might be completely wrong. Perhaps uh, you'll be in a better position to judge than I just what is the state of English evangelicalism. After all, I've only been here for two years. But then again, my analysis could actually be right. Familiarity has this uncanny blinding effect. The danger that worried us first when we, we first took a hard, cold look at the state of evangelicalism in England sometimes doesn't look as dangerous later on. But friends, if that is the case, then it's you that's changed and not the danger. How are we to explain those who call themselves evangelical refusing to take a stand on the Bible's teaching about sexual sin, especially homosexual sin? How are we to explain the embrace of such slogans as the Bible contains the word of God? How are we to explain the exegetical backflips done in the face of the Bible's teaching on gender differences or the priesthood of all believers? How are we to explain the reluctance of so many to critically examine the theology of a movement that first brought us speaking in tongues, then gave us words of knowledge, recently has given us Toronto with all its absurdities, and now in some parts of the world commends to us vomiting in the spirit? More important than all of these questions is how can we respond to the challenges we face? I want to spend the next few minutes encouraging us to be clearly evangelical and to be positively evangelical. I'm convinced that the answer to the challenges I've alluded to lies not in pointing the finger at the bad guys or even really trying to identify them, but in speaking the truth clearly, simply and without compromise and exercising a bold confidence in the God who is sovereign in his world. So first of all, on being clear. May I suggest that if we are to be clear about the message we have to proclaim in the world, there are at least five things we need to do. We need to, first of all, recommit ourselves to the careful study and preaching of the Bible as the word of God to recommit ourselves to the careful study and preaching of the Bible as the word of God. Now, it would be all too easy to dismiss this as something that's already the leading characteristic of our lives and ministries. But is it really? Even in evangelical circles, good, strong, expository preaching is just not common. The pressure is on from a number of quarters to replace exposition with entertainment or biblical teaching with the more attractive elements of the wisdom of our age. It seems to me that underlying so many of our most pressing dilemmas at the present time is an erosion of our confidence in God and his word. And that erosion of confidence shows itself in evangelical preaching when the passage is merely a launching pad for the things I want to say, 
when the stories or illustrations swamp the text, or when the sermon is full of good biblical truth, but not necessarily the good biblical truth that comes from this passage. Is that really biblical preaching? Or again, how many of our sermons are actually shaped by the texts we are preaching? Have we fallen into the trap of squeezing every biblical text into the same time-honoured formula? Perhaps one we learnt on camp or, or heard from one great one or, or read in some recommended textbook. Is that really biblical preaching? The Bible is the word of God to us. God, the God who knows much more about effective communication than the gurus of our day, God has spoken. And we, as those who have been rescued by his incredible mercy, need to hear and to heed what God has to say. As members of evangelical congregations, do we have an appetite for the word of God? Do we encourage those who minister to us to keep working hard at bringing the word of God to us? Do we refuse to be satisfied with anything less? Are we taking every opportunity possible to put ourselves under that word, to be shaped by that word, so that our lives might be a more appropriate response to all that God has done for us and said to us? And if you're a preacher in an evangelical congregation, are you still putting in the hard work of wrestling with the word of God in your own life and in your sermon preparation? Do you still have confidence that God changes his people through his word? Do we still believe that the word is the sword of the spirit, the instrument that is able to cut to the heart and affect the only kind of change that will really last. Do we still believe that? Or have we succumbed to the subtle pressure to fill our sermons with pop psychology, clever illustrations, and ungrounded exhortations? What do our sermons teach our people about how they can and should use the Bible? And are we still willing to learn to do it better? Today and every day, we need to recommit ourselves to the careful study and preaching of the Bible as the word of God. Secondly, we need to aim at clarity and simplicity. To aim at clarity and simplicity. Now, wasn't it James Denny who said, it is impossible to draw attention to your own cleverness and Christ's power to save in the same sermon. Perhaps it's a lesson we need to relearn in our present circumstances. Some modern evangelical writing and some modern evangelical preaching has let the liberal academy set the agenda and it's too clever by half. Now I'm not suggesting that we should abandon the academic defense and exposition of the truth. I'm not suggesting that we can afford to ignore the worldviews and philosophical systems that influence people both inside and outside our churches. I'm not saying that there's no place for serious, rigorous, biblical, theological and apologetic thinking. 
In fact, I'm actually convinced that we need to be more serious about these things. Some of our problems at the present time stem from the fact that precious few evangelical people have been engaged in the academic world of theology and biblical studies. What future can we expect if we abandon our universities and theological colleges to others who might be interested in teaching in them, while we simply get on with what is granted the most important job of preaching the gospel in our churches? What future can we expect when we tell our young men that working hard at getting the best theological education does not matter? Just do as much ministry as you can while you're at college and learn on the job. Do you really expect to build 40 years of ministry on three years of student work? Nevertheless, the aim of the game, either at the academic level or the popular level, must be the clear communication of God's truth, not a demonstration of our own erudition. And that must mean not fudging on the difficult issues. It's amazing, once you realise it, how, at how many points our confidence is being attacked from those who claim to be evangelical. Agnosticism has never been an evangelical virtue. But there are people today who are trying to tell us that it is, or at least it should be. It is almost as if we have allowed ourselves to become embarrassed about some of the things God has said to us. We blush at the thought of Jesus as the only way of salvation and all those who do not trust him being lost. We get all nervous about the Bible's forthright declaration that the only legitimate sexual activity is that between a man and a woman within the covenant of marriage. We look around sheepishly when people point to the Bible and the way it marks out different functions for men and women, either within marriage or within the Christian congregation. And so we fudge. We hide behind the scholarly uncertainty about this passage, or the vagaries of modern hermeneutical theory, or long-standing Christian differences on the particular issue. Have you noticed how the words, well, we can't really be sure, are being heard more and more frequently in evangelical circles. Could you imagine them on the lips of Billy Graham? Instead of, the Bible says, we'd have, well, maybe it's possible that it means. Or what about Martin Luther? I'm pretty sure this is where I stand. Instead of, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. Clarity is tied to confidence, and confidence is tied to clarity. If God has spoken clearly, we can be confident in the message we have to proclaim and the life we ought to live in response to God's mercy. When we are confident, we can speak and live clearly without fudging even on the difficult issues. And that confidence is right and godly because the confidence we have is not confidence in ourselves, but confidence in God, the clearly speaking God. Let's get back to clarity and simplicity when it comes to proclaiming and living out the word of God.
Thirdly, we need to recognise the pressures that are on us to be unclear. Recognise the pressures that are on us to be unclear. We ought to be honest with ourselves and with each other about the pressures which we feel to be more accommodating, to, to fudge on the hard ones, to cloud evangelical theology just a little. Some of those pressures are applied from outside of us, others from within. Some come from legitimate concerns, others, well, are much more dubious. In a number of recent books, we have been warned from our own history. We have been reminded how division has undone us in the past. Sometimes we're told at critical points in the past, when evangelicalism was on the verge of conquering the world, its effectiveness has been totally erased by an overcritical spirit and a tendency to ever narrowing definitions of orthodoxy or biblical truth. And we're warned about letting that happen again. Let's avoid all argument or debate, we're told especially over doctrinal and ethical issues. Let's affirm the variety of opinions, not just one. Now, this is a concern that's not totally without foundation. Undoubtedly, there have been some destructive and unnecessary arguments in the history of evangelicalism. Often they've been on things about which the Bible says little or almost nothing. Baptism, it seems to me, is one of those as is the question of uh, which method of church government is best. But I'm not persuaded that the overall analysis is entirely correct. Were the definitions really narrowed in the past? Was it really, really the reaffirmation of what the Bible teaches that undid us in the past? Perhaps we should read our history differently. Nevertheless, even if what we are told is 100% true, the answer cannot be to avoid debate and argument, but rather to be scrupulously honest and godly in the midst of debate and argument, being prepared to speak where the Bible speaks, to refrain from speaking where the Bible is silent, and always to treat our conversation partners with courtesy and in love. Another concern is that over intellectualism. We've been bombarded with the caricature of evangelicalism as excessively cerebral and unconcerned with the practicalities of life. Bad experiences of theological education sometimes give us an automatic aversion to even the suggestion of theological debate. And so we back off as quickly as possible from anything even remotely like a contra controversy with doctrinal questions at its heart. Perhaps you felt that pressure. It's a very real pressure. However, the answer is not to avoid theology, theological definition or theological debate. No, the answer lies rather with the recognition that theology cannot and must not be isolated from life. What you really think about God will, will shape the way you respond to him. What you really think about the Bible will show itself in the way you use it. What you really think about God's purposes in the world will shape your priorities. You can't help it, actually. Sometimes the differences in practice that you see betray a much more significant difference in theology 
than that which we are prepared to admit. You can't avoid the theological questions if you want to properly tackle the, the practical ones. None of us operates without a theology. The real question is whether it's the Bible's theology or whether it is a lie of the Satan. Now there are other pressures of course. A concern for love leads some people to suggest that we mustn't exclude anyone. A concern for power leads some to suggest that a broader definition of evangelicalism might have more influence than the one where the teaching of the Bible determines what we believe. We are in a much healthier position when we identify these pressures on us and what they generate in us and how they convince us to revise our understanding of what it means to be evangelical. Much healthier to admit those things than to pretend there is no pressure on us at all. Fourthly, we need to identify the points at which evangelical truth is under attack today. To identify the points at which evangelical truth is under attack today. Martin Luther once said that you were not defending the truth unless you were defending it at the point at which it is currently being attacked. Our problem is that the truth is being attacked at the moment from so many different points that it's hard to know where to start. I've just picked some. You, no doubt, could provide more. Of course, the evangelical understanding of scripture is under attack. Modern treatments of the subject by those who still want to claim the title evangelical have dismissed any suggestion of verbal inspiration. We are constantly being told that the traditional emphasis on the divinity of the scriptures is always at the expense of the humanity of the scriptures. We are being warned about ending up with a deceitic view of the Bible where it just appears to be human writing and it really is just some divine instrument that's dropped from the sky. However, the alternative proposed by such writers seems to me to be an adoptionist view of the Bible, where these words do not really come from God at all. God just chooses to use them, warts and all. The clarity of scripture is also under attack. So much of what goes for the discipline of hermeneutics is little more than an exercise in unbelief. I remember a great old saint of the past remarking that no one ever spoke about hermeneutics until we stopped believing in the Bible as the word of God. According to some modern writers, we might be able to communicate effectively with one another, but God is handicapped in this regard. To all of this, you could add the, the fundamental yet also blatantly ludicrous attacks of postmodernism and deconstruction. The biblical understanding of salvation is under attack, not least from the Church of England Doctrine Commission report, The Mystery of Salvation. That report not only denigrates Christ by promoting an inclusive view of salvation, Christ can and does save under the guise of other faiths, we're told, it minimizes the reality of hell. Annihilation is a truer picture than eternal torment, we're told. And it's weak on the second coming. The second coming is the manifestation in this world of the reality that is already existent in heaven, whatever that means. 
Yet the attack also comes from quarters much closer to home. A recent book presents four views of Christ and salvation where prominent evangelicals present two of the alternative views. View three, Christ is the only way of salvation, but we have to remain agnostic about the fate of those outside of Christ. And view four, Christ is the only way of salvation and those outside of Christ are without God and without hope in the world. View three, with its abandonment of biblical imagery, the imagery of the lost outside of Christ, has devastating repercussions for the significance of Jesus' death, for the character of God, for the practice of evangelism. If people outside of Christ are not lost, then why should we bother going out to tell them? If people outside of Christ are not lost, is not the cross a magnificent overreaction on God's part? Justification by faith is under attack. The great heart of Reformation theology is being stolen from us by those who would redefine justification in terms of our corporate identity or restricted to the Jew-Gentile debate of the first century. We are constantly being told that Luther, Calvin and their heirs have got the New Testament all wrong. They were wrong to think Paul was talking about the great end-time judgment of God, brought into the present by the work of Christ and applied to the individual by the Holy Spirit who gives us faith in Christ. Instead, we're told justification by faith is simply an indication that the barriers have been broken down, that Jews and Gentiles are welcome at the same table. It's the new covenant marker, not the bold declaration that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank God for that growing band of scholars, and I must say not just evangelical scholars, who are showing that so much modern writing on this subject misunderstands both Luther and Paul. Other battlefronts include the doctrine of the church and the doctrine of humanity. On the church, some recent writing, even by evangelicals, seems more intent on preserving institutional structures and authority than an honest investigation of the teaching of the New Testament. There seems to be some reluctance to provide us with a thoroughgoing critique of denominationalism in the light of the New Testament statements about the nature and function of God's people when they gather. I could list many more. I've just picked out a few of the ones that I'm up against at the moment. We need to identify the points at which evangelical truth is under attack today. To stand up for the truth where it's not under attack is quite safe and easy. But Luther was right. To defend the truth anywhere except where it is under attack is not really to defend the truth. Fifthly, we need to shun the false antitheses others try to thrust upon us. Shun the false antitheses others try to thrust upon us. Now you'll have noticed them, I'm sure. Are you a spirit-filled Christian or are you simply a word Christian? As if the spirit and the word could be separated, let alone opposed to one another. I've heard one writer proclaim a distinction between 
earnestly contend for the gospel, evangelicals, and you must be born again, evangelicals. As if a concern for evangelism must be in opposition to a concern for the truth of the gospel we proclaim. Or perhaps you've heard this one. Yes, you have a word-centered ministry, but I have a Christ-centered ministry. It's just patently absurd. As if you could honor Christ without taking the scriptures seriously. As if you could take the scriptures seriously without honoring Christ. And there are many others. Believe it or not, some people are being deceived by such slick contrasts. They sound good unless you listen carefully. We all recognize that the Bible is not God, that evangelism is the primary task in these last days, that the center of the Christian life and ministry is the person and work of Jesus himself. But the way these contrasts are drawn distorts the word of God and ends up distorting Christian life and ministry. So here then are just five suggestions for being more clearly evangelical. They're only a beginning, but given the current challenges we face, each is important. However, I'm convinced that we can be more than just clear. We can and should be more positively evangelical. Now, I must say there's a lot that can and should be said for being negative. The Apostle Paul, as we were reminded this morning, not only teaches the truth, he opposes and exposes error. What made many of the creedal formulations of the early church so effective was that they defined orthodoxy both, both positively and negatively. We believe X, we do not believe Y. One substance without separation or confusion. Now clearly there are times when a positive statement of the truth is not enough. We don't have to be embarrassed about our rejection of error or heresy. However, just at the moment, there is a danger that we are only ever heard in negative mode. Perhaps it's almost inevitable when the press, even the Christian press, is not particularly sympathetic. Perhaps, too, the wide range of contemporary attacks upon the teaching of Scripture distort the picture somewhat. But there are serious dangers attached to only ever being heard in negative mode. One such danger is that others make the running with a really positive vision of the future, one which I must say distorts both the past and the present on its way to that future. So why, what have we got to be positive about? Firstly, our heritage. We of all people have much to be positive about. God has been powerfully at work right throughout our history. Our evangelical heritage is enviable. Actually, it's one of the reasons why so many people who want to keep the label evangelical do so long after they have abandoned evangelical truth. Our proclamation and defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ stands in continuity with many of the great servants of God who have gone before. We can legitimately claim Wycliffe and Huss, Luther and Calvin, Tyndall, Latimer, Ridley, Cranmer, the Puritans, Wesley, Whitfield, Wilberforce, Shaftesbury and Ryle. 
If you were to make a list of influential evangelicals in England alone, it would be a very long list. With such an inheritance, we can afford to think big. No matter what those outside might say, and no matter what some evangelical revisionists might say, with Cranmer, Latimer, Ridley, Hooker and Grindle on our side, evangelical theology is the authentic expression of the theology of the Church of England. The suggestion by George Carey that evangelicalism is one legitimate expression of what it means to be Anglican, one but not the only one, is not true to history and it is not true to the foundation documents of the Church of England. Yes, it is a fact that the attempt to marginalise us has been going on since the time of Elizabeth I herself, but it is an attempt which is ultimately suicidal. The articles, the Book of Common Prayer, especially in its 1552 form, my favourite form, and the Book of Homilies are all full of evangelical theology. It's worth reminding ourselves of these things, particularly in our present struggle. We can be worn down and actually start believing the rhetoric that is thrown at us. Let them say we are an aberrant minority which has recently emerged and is trying to take over the Church of England. An honest evaluation of the facts shows that's just not the case. The Church of England was born out of that struggle for the truth which we call the Reformation. Its founders were amongst the first Reformation martyrs in this country. What's more, the reformers' appeal to the church fathers was on the basis that only evangelicals are the true Catholics. Well, it's also worth remembering that this struggle for gospel truth is itself nothing new. It goes back beyond the Reformation to the pages of the New Testament. Jesus spoke about the division that he came to bring about on the earth in Luke 12, while Paul spoke about the necessity of division in order to prove who will remain true to the word of God in 1 Corinthians 11. We were told, uh, we were reminded earlier today about Deuteronomy 13. Paul warned the Ephesian elders that after his departure, fierce wolves would come in among them, not sparing the flock, Acts 20. A struggle to preserve the truth of the gospel, a struggle even among Christians, is something envisaged by the Bible itself. That struggle might wear us down, but in itself it ought to encourage us. We are engaged in something big, something we share with Christians across the world and through the ages, and it has not caught God by surprise. The struggle is itself part of our heritage. Now, evangelicals in Britain have not been ineffectual in this struggle. Their impact has been felt throughout the world. Whitfield and Wesley both had a profound impact in America. Shaftesbury and others set the evangelical roots of the Diocese of Sydney in Australia. In this century, writers such as F.F. F. Bruce, Jim Packer, John Stott and others have encouraged Bible-believing Christians all over the world. Institutions such as the IVF, Tyndale House, Latimer House and the Proclamation Trust continue to make a vital contribution to the advance of the gospel far beyond these shores. We have much to be grateful for when we think about our heritage, what has been passed on to us. We can afford to think big. We can afford to be positive. 
We have every reason to resist the caricatures that are drawn of us and the ridicule that is thrown at us. Nevertheless, our confidence cannot lie in our heritage alone, nor even in an institutional recognition of our heritage. We've got a much better reason to be positively evangelical. That reason is, of course, not our denominational structures. Some people I know are still talking as if the cause of the gospel is really dependent upon our ability to secure a few more evangelical bishops, or even better, to convince the hierarchy to provide us with a couple of flying ones. But are we fooling ourselves? After all, we are supposed to have more evangelical bishops in the House of Bishops than ever before, and yet the Episcopal attack upon evangelicalism continues unabated. Perhaps we need to remind ourselves all over again of the biblical injunction, do not put your trust in princes, even ecclesiastical ones. Surely the same goes for committees or voluntary associations such as reform or even our theological colleges. A brief examination of our history will show all kinds of institutions that started out evangelical were perhaps even set up to defend gospel truth, but have ended up compromised or worse still, attacking the truth they were intended to defend. It is almost as if the shelf life of evangelical institutions is rather limited. We need to keep starting again every generation or so. It will be just as foolish to put our trust in the bright young things coming out of our universities and theological colleges. True, there are some outstanding young ministers of the gospel who are just starting out in their ministries. And despite the generally dubious state of theological education in this country, yet we all know of people who have begun in the gospel and left it behind. You could make a list of the bishops of the Church of England for which that is true, for whom that is true. No, our hope for the future of the advance of the gospel of Christ rests in God and in God alone. The gospel is, after all, God's gospel, embodying God's purposes, which stand unchanged since the foundation of the world. That gospel reflects the character of God, his love, his power, his faithfulness. It is Christ who builds his church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And even the faithlessness of his people is not able to thwart his purposes. Our God is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. No challenge that faces us changes that reality one bit, nor can any challenge undo his plan. And we need to keep in our minds that the advance of the gospel his gospel is not and never has been identical with the survival of the Church of England or even the distant hope of an evangelical in Lambeth Palace. Keeping this in mind, it's clear that pure negative thinking is just a symptom of unbelief. It is certainly possible that the Church of England might disintegrate and that its bishops might continue down the road of apostasy so that it becomes impossible for evangelicals to stay within it. Nevertheless, the cause of the gospel will continue and God will have a people for himself. John Stott put it this way recently, we are not utopians. 
We cannot build the kingdom of God on earth. We are waiting for the new heaven and the new earth, which will be the home of righteousness and peace. But meanwhile, he said, I'm an optimist because I don't think pessimism and faith are easy bedfellows. I believe that God is at work in the world. I believe that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to every believer. And I believe that the church can be salt and light in the community. It's so easy, isn't it, to despair when you look at what's happening around us, what's happening in our culture, what's happening in the Church of England, what's, what's even happening at points within modern evangelicalism. But trust in Christ commits us to a much bigger vision. Christ Jesus laid down his life to secure our salvation and the salvation of all who will put their trust in him. He sits at the right hand of the Father as Lord of all, and nothing can dethrone him. We have the one great message that the whole world needs to hear. Forgiveness is offered and heaven awaits. We cannot but be positive in the long run. Well, these brief and somewhat summary remarks are really a plea to stay clear and stay positive. We do not need to jettison clarity for the sake of being positive, nor do we have to abandon all hope for the sake of clarity. Don't fall into one of the two dangers that face us. The danger of fudging on what it actually means to be an evangelical, or the danger of falling into the pit of despair and negativity. God has spoken. He has not left us in the dark, nor has he revealed his mind to us in faltering, obscure tones. And God will triumph. His purposes will be fulfilled. The day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So let's be clear about the task that lies before us. Let's be clear about what we believe. Let's be clear about what we don't believe as well. And above all, let us renew our confidence in the one who loves us and will one day return to take us home. Why don't you pray with me?